G'day, Osha here, and thanks for downloading the show. Podcasts, as you know, are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So I've got some great people who work on the team here, including Andy Marr, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my EP, Hayley Van Spanier on the socials, and Mike Mills on the music. And these people all are very good at their jobs, and they need money to help me make this show. I'm going to play ads on this show to help pay them. So depending on the algorithms, depending on what you've been looking at, what pixels have found their way onto your browsers, you may hear an ad for something you've been going, I've been looking at that photo on Instagram a lot. Now I'm hearing an ad for it. Wow, how did they know? Uh, That's how they know. Or you might not hear an ad at all. So if you do, thanks for helping us keep the lights on. If not, you're going to hear Dave Sharma say something. Here we go. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our political system is owned by all of us in Australia. It's not just the property of the political class or elected representatives. And our government and our political system is only as good as the time and the attention and the effort that people, we're all stakeholders, right, that invest in that, which means taking a viewpoint on things, getting involved, communicating your views. If you do that respectfully, then you've got a better chance of people engaging with you respectfully and having a decent conversation about it. And I think, you know, the sort of low points in politics for me, I guess, are the things I find hardest to deal with is is when you feel people are sort of shouting at you, but they don't actually want to have a discussion with you because ultimately that's the only way that you can get forward. And, And the nature of politics is, and as it should be in a society like ours, not everyone is going to agree on everything and that would be it would be unhealthy and worrying if we all did agree on everything. But I think by listening to each other, we all refine our viewpoints. That is the Liberal MP for the seat of Wentworth in Sydney, Dave Sharma. And this is episode 378 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Uh, This is a bi-weekly podcast where each episode is guaranteed to help you make today just a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on the show will help you make today better than yesterday. Yes, even a conversation with a politician from a conservative party. (laughs) I'll get into that in a minute. 
If you've never listened to the show before, thanks for coming. My name's Osher. I'm a TV host and an author and a podcaster out of Sydney, Australia. I've got a magnificent wife called Audrey, two fabulous kids, two barking dogs, as you heard on Friday. And yeah, I'm here every Monday and every Friday. Monday, I speak with a guest. Fridays, I speak with you. And I've been here since 2013. Thanks very much to everyone who's supported the other podcasts that I'm working on. Uh, Dad Pod on Wednesdays that I do with Charlie Clawson. That's a parenting podcast. And we just launched Idol Australians uh, with my former Australian Idol, no relation to the title of the podcasts and that trademark brand name show at all. Uh, Idol Australians is out wherever you get your podcasts. And um, yeah, we just launched it on Thursday and it's out every Thursday. So if you haven't dived into that, I'd appreciate it. I did leave the first episode back in this feed. So if you want to slide back and listen to that, that'd be great. I'd appreciate the support there. But um, pop over and listen to the new feed, uh, rate and review the show. It's a conversation between Jim and I where we talk about the unsung heroes of Australia, Australian history, Australian culture. And uh, we kick off with the adventurous tale of Brisbane's 1992 Olympic bid. You didn't hear about an Olympics in 1992. It went to Barcelona, but it's the, the little town that could and we even get Sally Ann Atkinson, the Lord Mayor of Brisbane at the time. She comes on the show and tells us all about it. It's pretty great. Um, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dave Sharma is the Member of Parliament. He's sitting as a representative of the Liberal Party in Wentworth, the seat of Wentworth in Sydney. He was elected there in 2018. He unseated Karen Phelps, Dr. Karen Phelps, who was an independent and previously to Karen Phelps, it was Malcolm Turnbull's seat, the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. So it's an interesting uh, seat as far as the election districts go. It's the highest density seat of population in the country. It's also one of, if not the highest net worth seats in the country. So it's a bit of a power player economically, but also a very important seat as far as population goes in our country. I talked about reaching out to your MP on this show before, about six months ago, seven months ago. And I, I did a whole episode where I talked about the phone call that I had with my local member of parliament. Democracy only works when we engage in the system. Engaging with a system of democracy goes far beyond just placing your vote on polling day, getting a sausage and going home. They're people that work for you and me, all right? He may not be on my favourite team. I don't think I even have a favourite team because... As far as I'm concerned, all the teams are the same. He may not be on my favourite team, but he's the guy that's holding the reins of this part of the city, of the country that I live in right now. So if I want something to change or if I want him to do something differently, he's responsible for me and my family and I need to let him know. I've done a whole episode about this. Engaging with your, your local member of parliament is important. It can be intimidating. I talked all about how to reach out how to have your questions together, how to be prepared to get your point across and, you know, be aware that their time is precious and time is valuable. The first time I spoke with him, I had about 20 minutes tops, maybe 15, I think, and I had to be really concise and, and get through things. But I invited him to come on this podcast and he gratefully accepted and we spent an hour together. He did have to pop off in the middle of it to go and vote, which was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> we had to go and vote in Parliament and then he popped back in to have the conversation. But um, I wanted to have this conversation on the record so you can hear what it's like to hear someone 
who's a citizen, who's a taxpayer, who's a proud Australian, talk to their local member of parliament and what it's like to hear a conversation that doesn't exist in the soundbite or, you know, text grabs of the internet, of the reactionary, oppositional, polarised conversations that happen so often in public discourse. There's nuance to everything. You're never asleep and you're never awake. You're kind of on the way to one or the other. You're never full and you're never hungry. You're kind of on the way to one or the other. Like there's a tiny moment where you stop breathing in and a tiny moment when you stop breathing out. But in between, you've almost got a full set of lungs and you've almost got a full exhalation. So there's nuance and a spectrum to everything in life and to have it reduced to polarised bit quotes and tiny little bits of sound bites that are eight, 10 seconds long or 140 or 280 characters on Twitter, that's not the world. So it's important to give a little space to conversations and it's important to understand as well that you can engage in a conversation with someone that you might not see eye to eye with and it's something that's very important to you. I don't see eye to eye with Dave, who's my MP, on a number of things, but that doesn't mean that I can't find something to connect with him on, to see him as a human, to see him as someone who I get that part of what you're doing and I can agree with that. You know, and that's the truth. You know, there's parts of what he's doing that I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm on board with that. But there's also parts of what he's doing that I'm not entirely on board with. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, like everyone in our life, no one's going to perfectly fit the bill. And, you know, I guess when it comes to making your choice in election time, that balance is enough and only for you to decide if you're a single issue voter or a multiple issue voter. But I'm really grateful that Dave was keen to talk. I'm grateful we had a chance to speak. We did speak at a very interesting time in Australian politics. There is a colossal tectonic shift as far as the treatment of women on Capitol Hill here in Australia. And, um, you know, I, I always say that people are never going to change their minds in the comments section of a Facebook post or people are never going to change their minds on Twitter. They're never, ever, ever going to. Similarly, I was never going to get Dave to change his mind on a podcast and I was never going to get Dave to give me a direct answer to a question. I tried real hard. There was, I think I got once I got him to answer really close to directly, but I was using the time pressure of his voting bell to get him there. And you'll hear when I get there. But, you know, I think for the most part, he did what politicians generally do, which is speak in policy points and kind of bring everything back to what it is they're doing. I think he does it a lot less than others, but that's the job. And as we've seen over and over over the last few days here in Australia, it seems that not necessarily Dave, but the amount of times a politician has asked a direct question and are asked to be accountable for an action, the amount of times that they either turn that around and attack someone or blame the other party or turn it around and go, well, clearly I'm the victim of the media here. It's beyond count and it's something that we should really be aware of and I personally feel that we should demand more of our elected officials because you and I have to be accountable. There are things in place. Shit, if you or I pulled off or were accused of half of the things that are happening to people in the public eye right now, I wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't have a job. I think it's very important to expect that 
accountability is the same no matter where you sit as far as power is concerned in this country. But that's just me. So I'm grateful that Dave came on the show. I'm grateful to be able to demonstrate a conversation between two people who don't see eye to eye. I'm grateful to be able to demonstrate the way I asked questions that I was, you know, clearly concerned about and demonstrate how someone in his position either answers or doesn't answer but still says a lot of words. Now, bear in mind, you might listen to this conversation and go, fuck yeah, I'm all about that guy. He's great. And that is so super cool. We don't have to like the same things. We don't have to believe in the same things from our leaders and we don't have to you know, want the same things out of an elected official because it's a democracy and you're allowed to want what you want and I'm allowed to want what I want. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope it encourages you to indeed reach out to your own member of parliament and try to get them on the phone and let them know your concerns because I'm here to tell you. He might have been a bit evasive when we spoke, but it really matters to these people that someone from their electorate got in touch with them and told them their concerns. It, it really, really, really does. And I've spoken about this on this show so many times. Write a letter, send a fax, make a phone call, get them on the phone and tell them. If you want something to change in this country, you need to be in touch with your MP, your local MP, your federal MP, your state MP, whoever it is. Your job in communicating with them goes beyond you ticking a box or putting a number in a box. Your job to engage in democracy goes on through the whole time they're sitting in that seat to communicate with them and let them know how you feel. There's ways to do it that are effective. Like if you just write a very angry letter, calling them all kinds of names, probably won't get a lot done. If you try to connect with them as a human and let them know your concerns, they may not concede or agree with you right there and then, but that stuff's going to sit in their mind. I promise you, it will. And that's what I've tried to demonstrate here. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I look forward to all your feedback. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Enjoy this conversation with Dave Sharma. So grateful to have you on the show today, Dave. You are joining me from Canberra today, aren't you? That's right. I'm in my office at, uh, in Parliament House in Canberra. We're down here sitting for the week. Well, and so what does that mean? When do you get to see your family if, during when you're sitting? Uh, so normally we I normally drive down on a Sunday night from Sydney and then I head back from Canberra usually a Thursday night after Parliament finishes or, or a Friday. So I still get the weekends at home. <laughs> Which is good. So to prove we live in the future, there's a, a, a mate of mine who's on a contract down there in Canberra and um, they just get on the freeway and hit the button on the Tesla and away they go. And they reckon it's just changed their life because the car drives itself to Canberra. <laughs> if you do that with the Tesla, though, you still have to, you technically still have to have your hands on the wheel, don't you? Sure. Let's say, yeah, they have their hands <laughs> on their wheel the whole time, Dave. Because that makes me nervous thinking those things are right. <laughs> now, I should point this out. It is a work day for you, so thank you for taking the time. But at some point today, you have, will a bell ring and you have to go and vote on something? Yeah, so just at 12 o'clock, so Parliament starts late on Tuesday morning because all the parties have their internal meetings. So Parliament starts at 12 on Tuesday, which means bells will ring just before 12 and I have to go in just for the start of Parliament and then I can come back about six or seven minutes later. Uh, so your office is quite close to the chamber. Yeah, it's only um, oh, maybe a minute's walk away. 
Fantastic. Oh, well, that's, well I'm, ex- I'm excited that I, I get the chance to speak with you today. We have spoken before. We, we spoke on the phone when I reached out to you. You're my local member. And, um, you know, I always talk on this show about it's important to reach out to your local member, talk to them, you know, let them know your concerns. And I invited you to come on the show. And I'm really grateful that you did because I felt that our conversation on that day was something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that you can't be what you can't see. And as, you know, we're both parents, we all know that your kids only do what they see. You don't do what you tell them, <laughs> you know. <Yes. laughs> and so, you know, I, I felt it was important that we could model what a conversation between a member of parliament and someone from their electorate might look like because, you know, it's important. I'm in your electorate. You're my member. We're having a chat. But I, I think what's really important for me is I always try to look for the similar. I try very hard, Dave, to look for the similarities, not the differences. I think that's the most important thing if we want to do anything in this world. And um, one of the similarities is that we're both immigrants. We both came from out of the country. When did you show up? I came here in 1979, so I was about three years old then, with my father and mother. So my, my dad's, he's Trinidadian-born Indian ethnicity, but we were living in Canada. My mother's sort of Anglo-Australian, but she'd been out of the country for about 15 or 20 years. So we, mum was returning home. I guess my dad was immigrating here, and I guess this is for me, it was, it was my first time living in Australia when we moved here in 79. Between the Indians and the Chinese, they're very much like, all right, and then just got out everywhere because that's definitely in my wife's family, the Indians in my, in, my, in my wife's family in that part as well. It's definitely in Fiji. What's your story? My story is like we also have that in common is that my parents also met in London. My dad's Czech and my mum was Lithuanian and they both fled Russians at some point. My mum fled wow. the Russians in 1943 and my dad fled the Russians in 1968. In Prague. And, in Prague, um, in the Prague Spring, okay. That's right. And then they both met in London as young doctors and away they went. <laughs> my brother showed up <laughs> and then I showed up and then uh, at one point my grandfather, the patriarch of my mother's family who'd brought the people to Australia in the 40s, got quite ill and back then you just moved to be closer to home because there was no like, oh, we'll come and go. A plane yeah, fare was plane fare was a, a quarter of the annual salary back then. So, yeah. When you, when you were growing up, how early did you start to go, oh, you better call me Dave? How early did you go? Because Australia <laughs> in the early 80s. With a, Not a super multicultural or tolerant sort of a place, was it? No. Yeah. How, how early did you go, I think we'll just call you Dave, kiddo? Yeah. So I think probably when I was about oh, six or seven because – so my full first name is Devon Ann, which is actually my, – my dad named me after his – Bollywood film idol, who's a huge actor, Devanand in India. He died about 10 years ago. So, yeah, good on your dad naming me, naming your son after a, after a movie star. But um, my parents always called me Dev for short. And when you say it with a, sort of an Indian accent, it's more like Dev. It's more like what we'd say is Dave. So I was sort of answered to went by Dave, but I'd spell my name D-E-V in, in class and on whatnot. But the teachers would always call me Dev or sometimes they'd try and say the full name, Devanand. And so I just, very early on, I started to say, look, I'm, I'm just Dave. That's all I'm known as. Then people always call me David now, of course, as well. Fair enough, I don't mind. And Dave is sort of stuck, even though my legal name and all my official documents still say Devanand. When you were young, you went through something quite tricky, though, in your family, didn't you? It, was, it wasn't quite long after you came back that you, you, you lost your mother, was it? 
Yeah, I did. So my, my mother, um, she got breast cancer when I was in fifth grade. So I was about 10, I think. And then she passed away. It was, it was, it was really sudden sort of 18 months later. And I think I was too young at the time to kind of appreciate what was happening. So it was her, her death actually came as a real shock. Like I knew mum was sick, she was getting treated, but that's what hospitals and doctors are for, you know. And I'm sure my parents sort of did a good job as I probably would in kind of, you know, hiding me from some of that reality. So um, when I lost her, when she actually died, I was sort of devastated because it was so unexpected. You know, my mum um, had played a much more important role in my life than my dad. My dad was sort of the breadwinner. He'd actually, he still practised law back in Trinidad and Canada. He'd spent about half the year away. So mum was sort of the, the focal point of, of my life. So that's through my dad and I very closely together. My sisters at the time were 21 years old. So they'd actually grown up and sort of left the house. So they it was very hard for them too, but they sort of coped with it in a, in a different way. But suddenly my dad and I were there living in kind of what felt like a very empty household and having to kind of get to know each other and understand each other and do things that we'd never, neither of us had ever done before just to manage a house. You have a fairly spectacular academic career. You mentioned your father was in law. How early on did you realise that you were oh, I don't know, kind of just doing a little bit better than the other kids at school? <laughs> I, I think... Uh, that only came gradually, and it's probably more. I mean, I, I think I was just unnaturally sort of diligent about my studies. I mean, I don't, and I don't know quite what came over me or why I was or what instilled that in me. But I think from about fifteen or sixteen, I started to take all that stuff quite seriously. And I had look, I had some natural ability, but I was I didn't go through high school always at the top of the class or the ducks or anything else like that. It was only really in my last two years, and I really put that down more to just sort of work and application but like I said it wasn't my dad didn't sit over me and say you must do three hours of study today or is your homework done or anything else it was all me and I'm I'm still not not quite sure what <laughs> why that happened and when I look at my own children now so you know, they're just getting to that age where school work's becoming a bit more serious and a bit harder and a bit more demanding and I'm often thinking how, how do I you know I, I want them to take it seriously but I want them to enjoy life and, and you want them to reach these realizations themselves that if if someone else doesn't think something's important to them, you telling them that, that it is is not going to have the impact it needs. It needs to be that stuff needs to be internally generated, right? So I often wonder what what is it that that sort of does that for me. I think it was probably losing my mum and kind of a sense that I had to make my own way in the world a, a bit more, and and I was sort of a bit more responsible for my own fate, which kind of meant I took my studies more seriously than, than most kids my age. I think. Well, you're you know lucky to have had that realization so early. A lot of people. It comes to them quite a bit later in life, if if at all. I'm sorry that a tragedy had to befall you to discover that. That kind of work ethic that you discovered as you were 16, 17, and then later in when you went to Cambridge where you, you know, graduated with first-class honours, like you strike me as the kind of guy, like even at work today, like you read the briefs before whatever you're going to vote on today. You've, you've read the whole thing, haven't you? <laughs> oh, look, I'm, I'm <laughs> diligent but I'm, I'm efficient, I guess. So I love input. I don't often have idle moments like if I'm sitting around I tend to be reading something a book a magazine I'm checking the news I've got the radio on I do love information I love to know what's going on and you know in my current role I mean being in parliament's a real privilege and and getting to vote on legislation or, or offer a view on it or debate on it and so you know you do always want to know what's happening I mean I, I guess I've always been keen to understand the world and the world that you're in and what causes it and what drives it and you know the world I'm in now is one of legislation so I want to know why are we doing what we're doing or why is it proposed to do this in a certain way and what's broken and what are we trying to fix? And I guess it's a curiosity about the world that sort of led me to that method of working. 
You did pursue a bit of a career as far as, you know, being curious about the world. You worked for, um, do we call it DFAT, the Department of Foreign DFAT, Affairs yeah. Trade, for, for nearly 20 years, including being posted to Papua New Guinea. How young were you when you went there? I think I was 23 when I first went to Papua New Guinea. What was that like for a kid from Taramara <laughs> who went to Cambridge to show up in Port Moresby? What's that like? It was wild. I mean, I, so I started off, I first went to Bougainville, which is even at the time and still was even more remote than sort of Port Moresby. Bougainville had been in the Civil War for sort of 10 years. It had only really just come out of the Civil War. It was basically still cut off from the the rest of Papua New Guinea, never mind the rest of the world. Um, it was a real experience. And, and, of course, this is the, you know, it's not that long ago, 20 years ago, but it was a, a different era when you think about how do you communicate with people. I mean, I think there was certainly no no phones. There was email. You just use a Hotmail account. You might hear from people that way. We get the newspapers two or three weeks later. I remember, I mean, the whole Sydney Olympics completely passed me by. I think we, we found out two weeks afterwards that, you know, Kathy Freeman had won the gold medal and it had been a real success that I didn't live it contemporaneously. But it was um it was a real adventure. I mean, I was, I've still got a really fond place in my heart for Papua New Guinea and its people and its diversity and its its richness in a sort of ethnic richness, its linguistic richness, its cultural richness. It's it's a great country and people often think, oh, you know, Papua New Guinea wild and um, lawless sort of a place. It's got challenges, no doubt, but it's such a new nation. It's only when you go there that you realise that this was, you know, two or three hundred separate nations that were all kind of living together, mainly as, as language groups and, and tribal groups and whatnot, but quite different peoples with quite different traditions. And we sort of, the end of the Second World War and the end of the colonial period, we put all these people together and said, right, you guys are one country and you guys are another country. And that's hard if you don't have the traditions of being a single people. When you were in Bougainville, what did the experience of seeing people who perhaps were competing for resources or competing for territory or competing for farmland or competing for access to support. What did that do for the way you viewed, you know, the role of an overarching authority, be it a government or a city council or something, in keeping that community cohesive? I think you realise that a government ultimately has to govern with the consent of the people. Um, Now there's different ways to obtain that you know, the traditional way in our system is, is democracy and votes and you need that legitimacy because ultimately you're you're doing stuff as a government, you're redistributing wealth from one group of people to another, you're prohibiting certain behaviours, you're allowing other behaviours, you're often doing a whole lot of other things like that, which is sort of an impingement upon people. So people need to accept that you've got a right to do that and ultimately that right can be earned through the at the ballot box, it can be earned through good governance, it can be sort of asserted as a matter of royal prerogative or divine inheritance or whatever else. This is all the different systems of government. Or it can be sort of enforced at the point of a gun, you know. And you could sort of see when ultimately when governments don't have the broad consent of their people, no matter how they have got there, things start to fall apart. And that's as true of the government in in Beijing as and the government in Moscow, um, who have, you know, different ways they get their legitimacy, but ultimately they still need to try and govern with the public in mind and they all still take a very close interest in public opinion and um, when you're doing these things if you don't have if you're doing big things as a government you don't have the public support if ultimately your government is not going to last long I don't think. At what point do you think in your life you started to realise that you aligned I mean you you got elected as a member of the Liberal Party uh, which for people listening overseas is not like the Liberals in America or the UK, Liberal Party. Oh, the UK. Yeah, the Liberal Party is kind of m- more conservative here in Australia to varying degrees. 
at what point did you start to align? Did you notice, oh, you know what, I listen to this person on the news talks and I kind of agree with them more than the other person? It, it was an evolution, I think, for me. So it's probably really only in my 30s, I'd say. I'm 45 now, so I'm the sort of in my early 30s. And I, if I think about what it was, I mean, people make up their minds about, ele- about elections, about all sorts of things. It might be the policies on offer of the day. It might be the personalities who are leading the parties and whatnot, and that's all, all fine. I think for me it was more sort of a political philosophy thing that I think at our best the Liberal Party in Australia seeks to govern all Australians and seeks to govern for all Australians. Um, it doesn't seek to sort of identify with one group at the expense of another um, group. I'm not saying Labor necessarily does that, but I think sometimes centre-left politics has a tendency to say we're for workers and against business or we're for these people and against those people. And I think ultimately the Liberal Party in Australia at at its best ultimately recognises and facilitates individuals to make their own choices about how they should best live their lives. seeks to empower and enable choices but doesn't seek to dictate or or constrain choices. And, I mean, ultimately, I think if you – the difference, I think, worldwide, if you wanted to distill this between political parties of the right and political parties of the left, uh, political parties of the right tend to put the individual more at the centre of how they govern society. Political parties of the left tend to put the state or a collective sort of sense of, of good and purpose ahead of the rights of the individual. And that's – they're both legitimate offerings to make. But really, my own experience is people are so different, people are so diverse – People are best left to make their own choices, and people ultimately have the best freedom and satisfaction when they're when they're in charge of their own lives, for, for better or ill. You know, means they can make bad choices as well as good choices. Means they can make mistakes as well as triumphs. And as a Liberal Party, we need to help people make the choices they want to make. We need to still have a social safety net under people for if they make the wrong choices or they or they make mistakes. But ultimately, I think we're a party that's focused on empowering individuals to make their own choices and less about the primacy of a bigger collective entity. You talked about this is what the party you're a part of is at its best. Where are they today? We're in mid-March 2021. So anyone who can, a quick Google search will tell you what's going on in the news right now, particularly around our commitment to uh, net zero emissions and the rights of women in our society, which is more than half of our general population. You mentioned you've got to do the right thing for everybody. And that means that right now, the people who are a part of the minority of our country are making decisions for the majority of our country. So if if the, this is what you're describing as the Liberal Party at its best, where is your party right now? Well, I, look, I think... Um I would say that we could always be doing better and certainly right now we can be doing better, but I think that's true of any political party or any government. I'd say what have we done well lately, if, if you'll allow me that benefit and then I'll tell of what I think we need to do better. I mean, I think, you know, we've been hit by a once-in-a-century pandemic that's caused huge disruption, dislocation and loss of life and human misery all around the world. And I think though we haven't gotten everything right and we've been partly blessed by good geography and we've been partly blessed by a population that trusts its institutions and listens to advice and is, is largely compliant. But we've come through this, I think, a whole lot better than any other countries, both in terms of the health impact, of course, but also the economic and social impacts. We've managed to you know, keep people supported, keep people out of destitution and poverty, keep businesses open to largely protect their health, protect the elderly and more vulnerable populations as well. So I think we've done a good job in that. I think turning to the issues we've got to address now, look, I think um, we've all got to do 
a better job in facilitating true equality between genders, but also for other minorities, but I think particularly for women, true gender equality, not just equality at work and, and equal pay and pay parity, but equality of opportunity and, and equality of, of, you know, in terms of not being subject to harassment or assault or discrimination, which is still, I think, way too endemic in Australia against females. And it's it's an institutional problem. I mean, it's a problem in the parliament, yes. It's a problem in the government, yes. But it's a problem in businesses, in corporations, in societies, in schools. I mean, you know, you see all this stuff and you realise, well, this is quite a profound problem that we've got to do a better job of addressing. And, yeah, ultimate, absolutely, we as a government, myself as a political representative, need to play a role here in, in firstly, calling out bad behaviour and making clear it's intolerable, but secondly, sort of setting standards and improving uh, and, and improving our own house and making sure that we're a, a model for behaviour, not a, a model for sort of disreputable behaviour. When we spoke on the phone, we spoke about climate action and we, we spoke about things like that and you used words sim- very similar to, look, I'm a part of a team, but I do hope that I can make a difference in in the long term. And look, I tried real hard to, how can I relate to that? You know, particularly just focusing now on the, the rights of women to be safe in our society, you know, let alone have equity. I think about what, what can I, how can I relate to that? And I think about, if you will, uh, the early seasons of Australian Idol, which was a singing show which I was a part of and I played a role of and I was the face of, one of the faces of, uh, there was five faces and I was one of them. And a big part of that show was kind of the the ritual humiliation of people who weren't that good at singing. It hurt my heart, but not so much that I would walk away from the money. And I think about that now and I wonder if I was offered a similar job that did the same thing to people who may not have realised that they were being made fun of, would I take the gig? I'm a very different person now. I'm 11 years sober, life's very different. But I remember at the time, yes, I acknowledged this pain inside me, but I'm like, yeah, for the money. And that's what I did. Now, when you're sitting in parliament, for example, and the leader of your party, our prime minister, says, oh, yeah, there's a march outside for women, but they're lucky we don't live in a country where they shoot protesters. And then when the leader of the opposition stands up and starts to talk about Brittany Higgins and the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, gets up and shuts him down, what happens inside your body? Is there a part of your moral compass that goes, oh, hang on, oh, now I have to be quiet? Like, what happens? Look, firstly, everyone, I think, is is answerable for their own actions and their own conduct and because people might say things or behave things in a different way to the way I would do it. You know, ultimately, that's for them to be judged by and then to explain. I'd say with what the Prime Minister said, um, I'm going to have to pause this in one minute, Osher, and then, and then come back. Um, I think, look, there, there's a context to all of these things, and it might sound evasive for me to, to say this, but I, I think the Prime Minister was, I think, trying to make a, a point, and perhaps people didn't take it the right way, that asserting the legitimacy of the right of the people to protest and, and make their views known and that we would always welcome that and we are always open to people doing that. So I, I put a positive interpretation on what he said. I know people could argue otherwise, but I think he was making the point that, you know, it's a good thing about Australia that people can make these views known and their voices heard and we should always listen respectfully to those views and, and those voices. On the second part, again, it's very context-specific, but these things are done not to shut down or, or stifle debate, but it's a well-known formula that you get there within Parliament that the Leader of the Opposition will normally seek to suspend standing orders to immediately move a 
a particular issue. And the normal convention, when we've been in government at least, is that we don't allow that to happen because we've got formats and forums where these issues can be discussed and raised. But once question time ends, we've done the condolence motions, we move on to legislation. It's one of these sorts of things. Now, you could say, the opposition leaders use this quite cleverly to say um, they've shut down the debate on this and they've shut down the debate on this. People can say it's, it's wrong, we should have heard him out on this. You could say that about any issues, but I guess we're sort of balancing the management of parliamentary business. Now, I don't mean that to sound, um, as I said, evasive. It's just, it's the you, reality. You, did, you of, didn't so tell I'm, me how it made you feel, Dave. I asked you how it made you feel <laughs> and you told me. I'm, 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 I'm personally comfortable with it, but I can appreciate that others might not be or might be opposed to it, but I'm personally comfortable with it. I mean, you know, I have to examine my conscience every day about all sorts of things, but no, I'm, I'm okay with that. I know you've got to go and make a vote. I will sit here and wait on a Zoom call. All right. Just taking a moment here to uh, let you know that if conversations with sitting members of Australian Parliament are interesting to you, perhaps another angle uh, from the one we're listening to today could be that of Dr Helen Haynes. She is the independent MP for the Victorian seat of Indi. Uh, That's episode 343. It's a fantastic conversation about someone who's quite progressive on a number of issues and as an independent really has only the alignment to the people of her seat. Think about who you elect to government because the big policy leaders are driven by the government of your nation. Do not underestimate the power of you as a citizen and how you vote and how you talk to other people and how you garner a campaign if if you're up for it. Don't be afraid of that. If ever there's something I learnt in this little patch here in rural rural Australia was don't be afraid to participate in your democracy. It actually feels great. It feels great. You know, you don't have to be an expert on anything. You don't have to know how many gigawatts of this or megawatts of that. You don't have to know foreign policy. You don't have to know any of those things, but you do have to know what are the key values that you hold dear and who is it? that's going to sit in the parliament and represent you and stay true to those values. That's Dr Helen Haynes. She's the independent MP for the Victorian seat of Indi, episode 343, if you scroll back through the feed, if you want to hear another politician uh, from our government, just to demonstrate other ways that people can speak who have that job. Anyway, maybe here's some ads now. Maybe we're back to the show. Let's see what happens. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There was the ad. Now we're getting back to the show. Hi, Usher, I'm back. Yeah, I got you. How was that? Did you run? Did you walk? <laughs> I just walked. 
you've generally got four minutes. Well, actually, you've got exactly four minutes. When the bell's ring, you've got four minutes to get in the chamber. So from my office, it's okay. If you're in the far-flung corners of the building, though, and the press gallery is often the worst spot, you've basically got to go at a clip and possibly run. Is it a roll call? Do they say Sharma, President? Well, you do get marked off at the start of really? each day. So that, that they, don't, they don't call your name, but it's recorded <laughs> on the hand side who's present in the chamber. Um. We talked that in your in your thirties is when you started to kind of align a little more with the conservative side of politics. But you worked with Kevin Rudd and you worked with Julia Gillard at a quite high level on very sensitive yeah. national security interest levels. So you you would have been briefed on everything. What lessons do you take from that time that you still use today? Well, so I guess I'd say a few things. Look, firstly. And I think sometimes the public doesn't appreciate this, but having worked closely with politicians from both sides of politics, nearly all of them, unfailingly, are good people there for the right reasons, trying to do the best job they can in the circumstances. And um, look, politicians rightly get criticised for getting things wrong. I think probably unfairly, though, they get too often criticised for lacking good faith, if you like, or being in it for quite self-interested reasons. My almost universal experience of people here is that they're in it for the right reasons, trying to represent their community, trying to represent a point of view. It doesn't mean you'll agree with them all the time. It doesn't mean they'll always make the right decisions, but generally speaking, I think that's true. Uh, the other thing I'd say, so I worked quite closely with Julie Gillard when she was the Prime Minister, and I look, I'm very fond of her. I've, I've seen her since, I've been in touch with her since. She's an incredibly decent, warm, generous human being, I think, and a compassionate one as well. And I think what I noticed most about her was I worked on the international issues for, for her. I was the sort of senior official in her department, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, on international issues, which meant whenever she was meeting a foreign leader, I was usually briefing her beforehand and in the room, and then whenever she was going overseas, I was usually on the plane as well briefing her. And she quite readily, you, you might recall, said, look, international issues wasn't her passion. It's not why she got into politics. She was much more interested in health and education and, and domestic policy issues. But she did a really good job internationally as our um, Prime Minister, and that really came down to just her personal qualities, interestingly enough, her warmth, her charm, her genuineness in her interactions. They had really good relationships with a whole lot of foreign leaders just because of who she was as a person. You often think when you're talking about interactions between states or, or countries, you know, there's interests and there's things you've got in common and things you disagree on and, and these sorts of drive the relationship. But a lot still comes down to the personal chemistry, if you like, or interactions between leaders and the fact that two leaders might happen to get along really well just as a matter of personal chemistry often has quite a big impact on how the relationship's travelling and whether you can get things done with your country that you might not otherwise be able to, to get done. So this stuff still really matters in diplomacy. How close is like we see those, you know, those moments in like a show like Veep when she's meeting a foreign <laughs> dignitary and he just reaches forward and whispers in her ear, that's such and such from Sri Lanka. Like how close is that to reality? I often say, I mean, you've got two extremes in terms of political dramas. You've got House of Cards, which shows politics to be far more Machiavellian and sinister than it is. And you've got Veep showing politics to be far more chaotic and disastrous than it actually is. But there, there is some truth, certainly, in Veep. You see things sometimes when the things that go wrong or the kind of scheduling mess-ups mess or the fact that someone isn't where they're meant to be or someone has to be introduced to someone else, I think it's 
it's painful to watch sometimes because it gets dangerously close <laughs> to the truth. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. I've heard about some of those satirical shows that people go like, "Where did you? How did you hear that? How did you hear that that happens?" Like, they, we just made it up. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> never mind, because uh, it just like because hit hit nail on the head. You talk about dealing with uh, people from other countries and and leaders of other countries. This year is a very important year for our country because we're going to go and have to sit at the table with leaders from all around the world at a climate conference and we're going to have to look them in the eye and say, yeah, I know you said this many percent, but we're only, we may get there to 28%. Like, I don't think I'm out of the order. You know, there's a real risk in us damaging our international reputation and our ability to have any sway on other policy matters by not coming to the table here. Aren't you worried about that? Aren't you worried about what we're bringing to the the table when it comes to that climate conference? I think we've got to do a a better job in explaining what we're doing and what we've done, but I actually think we've got a good story to tell. doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing more, but if you look at this whole global effort, it's about reducing our emissions, right, and eventually getting to net zero because it's only when we lessen the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere that the the warming effect that's caused by that will lessen and and will reduce or eliminate or, or mitigate climate risk. Our emissions since 2005 in Australia, which is sort of the the benchmark year for the Paris commitment, so they're now down. The the last greenhouse gas inventory came out about three weeks ago, shows that our emissions are down 19% since 2005, and that's over a time when our population has grown, our economy has grown. Our emissions are now um, at their lowest level since 1995 in Australia. And if you look at comparable period, so the same period, 2005 to now, Amongst the OECD nations, they're down 9% on average, so we're down 19%, they're down 9%. Canada, down 1%. New Zealand, down about 1%. So in terms of what we're actually getting done and what we're delivering, we're transitioning quicker than the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing better, but it's important, I think, that we don't allow ourselves, and I disagree with this sort of characterisation that we're the laggard somehow in, in all this or we're the pin-up boy for bad behaviour in international climate. We're simply not. We've had divisive politics over this. And, yeah, we've had people who've disagreed quite prominently with the science of climate change, if you think. I think that's unfortunate. But if you look at what we're actually achieving, it's substantial. And this is what – I mean, it's no good making commitments that are sort of ultimately empty or that people aren't delivering on because ultimately we're not going to be judged by our commitments. And, and the atmosphere isn't going to know what our commitments are. The atmosphere is going to know what our – what our delivery is, and this is what we need to get right. So I think we've got a, a good story to tell. I think, pleasingly, I think we've put a lot of the divisive politics behind us on this issue. I think that's important because we need a kind of a national consistency around this issue. We can disagree about this or that policy, but we shouldn't be disagreeing about the direction we're heading in or the, the trajectory we're going. And I think mainstream of Australian politics in both parties now is sort of aligned behind a single direction. And we'll, we'll still disagree on policies, but I think we're all saying it's a disagreement about what's the best way to get there or how quickly should we be going in this area and how quickly should we be going in that area. There's the environmental argument, which is utterly harrowing and terrifying. And anyone that looks into their eyes of their children and goes, yeah, sorry, kid, has got to feel some amount of pain inside their body when they know what is on the way. But then there's also the economic agreement. And you yourself have said that progress in this area is exponential, not linear. Our economy is so based, 60-something percent of our economy is so based on fossil fuels. When that exponential curve kicks in and the doubling effect kicks in, like within only a short number of years, way quicker than we can possibly adapt to, we're looking at being left in the dark, literally in the dark, as our economy struggles to keep up with a, with a world that doesn't want our coal anymore. 
can't we be doing more to make sure that there will be the jobs and growth, which has won elections for your party? Can't we be doing more? Because right now it feels like we're not. Right now it feels like we are really letting the side down with not making sure these industries transition to be there. I mean, we're a minnow. We're tiny. We're 24 million people. China will flick a switch and that's it. Coal's over. India will flick a switch and coal's over. And if we're not ready, we're stuffed. Don't you worry about that sort of thing? I do, but I think, and look, this would be a difference with our sort of the other side of politics here. I think these transitions are best managed by a combination of market forces, investor sentiment, consumer demand, and everything else. I think everything you're saying is is true. That ultimately, you know, the world is transitioning to a new form of energy. Coal is becoming uh, less investable as an asset. No one wants to build a new coal-fired power station because they can't guarantee a return on capital. But investors won't fund it. Pension funds won't go into it. And increasingly, consumers will want to make sure that whatever they're producing, uh, whatever they're consuming rather, is produced with a low environmental footprint. So I think that's happening as a matter of course. And our job as a government, I think, is not to say we're going to put a timeline on that or we're going to say that by this date, this is going to close and this is going to close. Let's let the market do that because it's better at doing that than we are. But let's focus on what are the new opportunities for us. And I think you know, we're putting a lot into hydrogen as a potential renewable fuel. And if we can get hydrogen at a commercially affordable rate of production, then we can be producing things like green steel, which means, you know, you're reducing iron ore to make steel with with zero emissions using renewable energy, hydrogen as the reductant rather than coking coal and green steel. I think we'll be doing a lot and be saying more on this in the budget on carbon sequestration or soil carbon, basically, because Australia potentially, you know, we've got some of the biggest landmass in the world per person and the quality of our soils has been depleted considerably since white settlement. And if we can store more soil in the carbon, it's not only good for drought resilience and flood resilience and crop health, but it's also be a massive carbon sink for the world potentially. I think there's more we can be doing there. I think we need to start looking at industrial processes like aluminium, for instance, aluminium smelting, doing that more green. But I think that's where we should be focusing on. These are the opportunities. These are the jobs. And then everything else sort of happens naturally because capital shifts to you know where it's going to be getting a good return. Workers shift to where industries are growing and investors are growing and the sort of legacy businesses and legacy industries just kind of wind down over time. And I think that's the better way to manage this. You don't think that someone like the Minerals Council or, you know, people who've got very big private planes that, you know, own giant cattle ranches and things up in the Kimberleys uh, won't be on the phone going, what are you doing to me? Like, I mean, I know that sounds like I'm talking about a Dr. Evil Machiavellian situation here, (laughs) but I can't imagine that the levels of income that those mining companies are getting from fossil fuels will be easily and readily handed over. Surely there has to be more of an intervention to encourage the market to move. I think the market's moving. I mean, there's special interests in in any industry that's, that's struggling or failing or under competitive pressure. But if the competitive landscape and the economic landscape is such that we can't change that as a government, I mean, if BlackRock says... You know, one of the world's biggest you know investment funds in the world says, you know, we're getting out of coal in 10 years' time and we're going to increasingly be looking at companies we invest in. We want to see their pathway to net zero. Well, we as the Australian government aren't going to be able to change that or talk them out of it. If consumers are saying, hey, we're not going to buy this because its carbon footprint is too intense, we're going to buy this instead. Well, the government's not going to be able to change or prescribe that. And, and anyone who is in these businesses, I think, I mean, you see this with the big energy companies, you know, Chevron, BP, um, you see it with the car companies. They're all realising that if they want to remain competitive, they need to transition. And if they've, they've got a duty to their shareholders to do this, but they've also got a duty to, you know, if it's a family-run business to their families, to 
I mean, there's an inevitability about this, and it's not things that any particular government can control. And anyone who's a responsible steward of their business and their workforce and their employees is saying, we need to start getting real about this. And I think, you know, Rio Tinto, I think, is putting aside some of their problematic issues in the past has recognised this as making the transition, BHP as well. You know? So I think if those guys who are made a fortune off coal assets in particular, but also iron ore realise this, then I think it's happening. It's just a question of finding the smoothest pathway to that transition. But no government anywhere in the world is going to be able to stand in the way of this, I don't think. The world is increasingly going to be looking for things like lithium, graphite, cobalt, manganese to put in the batteries that will power this electrification of, of the planet. Australia mm. has, we have fallen backwards down the stairs and landed on our feet again because we happen to have a lot of these things underneath our shoes. We do, yeah. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to try and see that some of the profits from the sale of those things don't just vanish into the hands of privately held companies or companies that are only controlled by a, a relatively small number of shareholders. Where do you stand on the idea that the profits from some of these mining companies and the profits from the mining of these particular minerals could be used to fortify the country in a way, the same way that Norway has done with their sovereign wealth fund? I mean, we do have a sort of a sovereign wealth fund of sorts in Australia. It's called the Future Fund. That's that's been kind of not uh, really it's, that. It's not really that great. I'm talking it's, about. It's, I'm talking about the, the Norwegian one is 1.6 trillion dollars. Like they can pay every single man, woman, and child in Norway jobkeeper for the rest of their life just on the dividends alone. Like to be honest, Dave. If the West Antarctic ice sheet drops off in 10 years from now and the sea suddenly rises three metres, we would have such a buffer economically to protect us as a country if we had this sort of thing, you know, rather than just go, oh, the market will sort it out. We have this opportunity right now. Could you imagine if we'd done this with, with coal? Life would be very different. Well, we sort of, I guess the, the way it works though in our federation is that the states own the rights to these minerals and they charge royalties on them. So the states do get the benefit of the extraction of these minerals. Their royalties regime inevitably sort of has to balance the desire for them to take the biggest share possible versus investors having to find it an attractive enough opportunity to prospect, explore, extract and process, right? Because we want private capital doing this job, not public capital. You'll recall there was a, an attempt to kind of impose a resource of super profits tax or the mining tax, as it was called, under the Rudd Labor government in about 2010, I think, from memory. That was enacted, but ultimately, I mean, it didn't, it raised almost no revenue and it wasn't successful because behaviour changed as a result of this tax. People didn't go into these new asset classes or didn't make investment decisions because of the tax. So I think we should always make sure we get our share of the wealth that's being generated in Australia, but I don't necessarily know that us controlling the resources themselves is the right thing. I mean, I don't think we should have a national resource extraction company or we should nationalise, you know, BHP or have the equivalent of, of Rosneft in Russia or something. I don't think that's an Australian tradition. I don't think we, we necessarily manage that well. But I think we do need to make sure that these companies are paying their fair share of company tax and, and other things. We do make need to make sure that states are charging royalties. There's always an argument. I mean, it, it's hard when you're basically saying we're going to take off current income and defer it for future needs because there's always a huge demand to spend whatever's collected uh, now. I mean, we've got big demands on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, for instance. Um, we've got big fiscal demands coming down the pipeline with aged care and the Aged Care Royal Commission. It's always an intergenerational argument, you know. Should we be spending more on people today and borrowing from the future or should we be saving from now and lending to the future, if you like, to look after future generations? That's a difficult argument, but I think politically speaking, I mean, it's a hard political sell in Australia to say that 
we're going to fund less public services now or less social services now to put it off in an account to be used for a future generation. Generally speaking, the public doesn't tend to go for that too much. We have this opportunity now, though. Never before in history has an externality, an economic externality been so clearly, evidently down on the way as right now. Like, there is an inevitability about the rise of global temperatures and what that will do for our water security, our food security, employment, our current economic state. As the government in power, don't you have an obligation to get behind and help the nation kind of leapfrog to a place where beyond where the market would take us in that the way that incrementalism works, as you were describing earlier, don't we have an obligation to put things in place that allow us to leapfrog to get to a far better position far quicker? I, I think that sounds great theoretically, but I think the practical and empirical results of governments attempting to sort of leapfrog to new stages of industrial development are pretty mixed historical record. I mean, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but, you know, the great leap forward in China, for instance, an attempt to kind of fast boot China's I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking oh, about oh. Our, our country. You know, you talk about the, you know, hydrogen, which is a, is a great thing. But if you allow the market to take care of it, there's a speed at which that transition will take. If, if we brought that forward 25%, 50%, even more, wouldn't that then put us in a far better position? Yeah, I agree. And this is why we've got bodies like the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which we've just recapitalised for the next 10 years and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which are basically seeding investment in all these technologies to get them to a point where they're going to be commercial. And they're not trying to pick winners. They're investing in a whole different range of technologies. But we've seen that, for instance, you know, with solar and wind. I mean, solar and wind was not cost competitive as a power generation source 10 years ago. But because of large-scale investment and support from government, including our own, the cost curve has come right down. And now uh, renewable energy is cheaper even uh, once firmed, quote-unquote, and the levelised cost of electricity is cheaper than existing coal and certainly cheaper than new coal. That's why we're doing, you know, investing stuff in things like hydrogen. That's why we're investing or helping to invest in new battery technology, grid stabilisation, decentralised grid management, building efficiency and energy efficiency. I think that's the sort of proper role for government is to say, because we don't know which technology is going to win out here. We don't know what the dominant format is going to be. We don't know if hydrogen is going to be the future fuel or whether it's going to be batteries that are more widespread or, or anything else. So I think the best thing we can do is say, you know, let's support a whole lot of different projects and let's see what stacks up commercially and what doesn't, because ultimately that's where what will take off and what consumers will adopt. So I think that's the role for government here is to see things. It's not to say, you know, hydrogen is going to be the future fuel because it, it might not be. There's could be too dangerous. Might be safety issues. Might not be transportable. You know, but let's invest and see where it gets to, and and then let's let's let the market ultimately pick that winner. We have two different kinds of elections here in Australia. We have a state election. We have a federal election. And generally, you know, the state election is a bit of a taste test. A bit of a oh, that's how those guys are feeling. What are they going to feel like in you know eighteen months from now? In Western Australia, the party that romped to victory did so with a very a very centrist stance. And you don't get the kind of results that the Western Australian government got without appealing to a lot of people at once. Do you see that this might be a, a tide turning away from the kind of polarising right versus left that we have in, in our country? Is this... Do you see that centrism might be a way forward for our nation rather than, oh, you bloody greenie, or, oh, you bloody fascist? Like, none of those things are true, but they stop us in our tracks and all we do is argue and never get anything done. Yeah, I, I think political elections, I think, are nearly always one from the centre in Australia, particularly 
with a compulsory voting system as as we've got. If you're not sort of seeking to govern from the centre, it's very hard to win an election in Australia. I would say though that I mean I think state and federal elections are often decided on quite different bases, and, and people often and they'll say this they they vote one way at the state level, they vote another way federally. I mean often. Now, during the Howard government, for instance, you know the last kind of Liberal Conservative government in Australia, it was often there was a period there where it was every state government was a Labor government, for instance. And then during the Labor years, when Labor was in government, quite often a lot of the state governments were were Liberal governments. And I'd also say, I mean, look, I think you know Mark McGowan has done a good job managing the COVID pandemic in Western Australia, and I think he's been rewarded for that. But often, what can seem like a kind of a once in a generation white hat, if you like, or a change of the political landscape, often isn't. I mean. You know, you might remember that Campbell Newman won a resounding victory to be the Premier of Queensland. I think he left the Labor Party then with about seven seats in opposition. But in one term, they were back in government, you know. So, yeah, yeah, fortunes can change very quickly. And I think people are much less rusted on now, I guess, in terms of how they vote than they have been historically in Australia. I think people don't say, I'm a Labor voter or a Liberal voter in the same way. I think people decide each election on its merits, which is a good thing. Dave, I know you've got to go. You're a very busy man. Clearly, I feel very differently about a few things economically and environmentally than you do, but I hope that we have allowed people to hear this is what it's like when someone like you and someone like me get a chance to talk. I feel like you heard me. I hope you feel like you understood what I was trying to tell you. And Absolutely. as I mentioned before, there's a lot of, you look for the similarities, not the differences. I'm on the board of We Ride Australia. And so I very much look forward to catching up with you for a bicycle ride at some point in Canberra uh, when I get some time away from the roses. <laughs> that would be great. Actually. And I, I would just say our political system is owned by all of us in Australia. It's not just the property of the political class or elected representatives. And our government and our political system is only as good as the time and the attention and the effort that people, we're all stakeholders, right, that invest in that, which means taking a viewpoint on things, getting involved, communicating your views. If you do that respectfully, then you've got a better chance of people engaging with you respectfully and having a decent conversation about it. And I think, you know, sometimes I, the sort of low points in politics for me, I guess, or the things I find hardest to deal with is, is when you feel people are sort of shouting at you, but they don't actually want to have a discussion with you because ultimately that's the only way that you can get forward. And and the nature of politics is, and as it should be in a society like ours, not everyone is going to agree on everything. And that would be, it would be unhealthy and worrying if we all did agree on everything. But I think by listening to each other, we all refine our viewpoints and we all take different things from those conversations and we reflect on them and we think, yeah, maybe there's something in that or maybe that's right or, you know, and that's ultimately I think how our political system progresses and proceeds and, and reflects, you know, public opinion. Thanks so much, Dave, and, and please thank Luke for me for helping us organise today. I know we had to bounce it around a few times and I know you worked pretty hard to make us uh, a time where we could speak today. Um, have a great day, Dave. Really appreciate your time, man. You too, Asha. Take care. So that was Dave Sharma. He is the MP that sits in the seat of Wentworth in Sydney. He uh, is aligned with the Liberal Party of Australia, which they're not the Liberal Party. They're the Conservative Party. They're not Liberal in the way they act. They're the Conservative Party. Economic rationalists. Small government and big business versus the other guys. I thought that was really interesting the way Dave broke that down. He did a very interesting, quick political basically the forms of government, which I thought that was really kind of fascinating. He did a really good primer in there on the different forms of government, all the way from democracy, which is what we have, to totalitarianism. And I thought that was really fascinating the way he described all that. And he's seen them all, you know. He works, he's worked all over the world and he's seen all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, I'm at least grateful that 
even though we don't see eye to eye on, not everything, but we don't see eye to eye on some things. I'm really grateful to have someone in the seat that I am directly affected by have such a view of our place as a country in the world. There are plenty of people in our parliament that don't have that. They very rarely have left the country and they really don't see far past the borders of their their electoral boundaries. Because we're a citizen of the world. We all breathe the same atmosphere. We all have the same ocean. And both of those things are going to become very, very important in the coming decades. Thanks so much for listening. Send us your email at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with me. Wednesday uh, is the next episode of Dad Pod. Thursday, Idle Australians with James Matheson. And Friday, I'm back here with you. I hope you've had a fantastic weekend. If you had an Easter break, if you're catching up with this in five years, hey, it was Easter. Uh, Some of us went to the beach. Some of us were in lockdown. That's probably how it's going to be for a little while. (laughs) All right. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and to have beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.